Welcome to another episode of The Revenue Blueprint. Jason, excited for today? Yeah, good to see you. Yeah, today we won't have a guest, but we're going to bring up a few topics that have been coming up a lot in conversations. I'll kick this off with a question to Jason. Is the BDR role going to go extinct? <laughs> I, so this is, I think, in short, I think the BDR role may be dying. And oof, I thought the BDR for so long, <laughs> so long. Where, where would I be without it? it yeah. And I think, but I, I don't think there's, it doesn't mean there's not a place for those people, but I think there is some, there are things that are changing about the landscape and things about the role that don't make sense anymore. Now what? I, I will. What? Yeah, let's hear it. A lot of these thoughts too are just from seeing what's been going on in the world, but also one of the smartest people I know about sales, a guy, Liam Mulcahy, who works on the go-to-market team at Kleiner Perkins has talked to me about this and I think he's right. But let's talk about some like the fundamental problems with the BDR role right now is one, the you hand the, you hand the deal off just when it gets important and gets good. So oftentimes you qualify someone, you hand it off to them, and all of a sudden you are no longer involved in the deal. So you don't really know what happens beyond that. And you're not paid to be involved in the deal. Oftentimes you're just paid to set up a qualified meeting. So it doesn't make sense for you to be involved in that any further. Second or is- set, Or set up a meeting that's qualified on paper, but you've had no engagement with them, right? So it's very right. much, uh, you're not engaged. You're not learning. You're not, you don't even know if it's heating up, but yeah, continue. Sorry. Plus you are the most inexperienced person on the sales team and you are tasked with being the face of the brand and being the first person to reach out to folks about, about the whatever it is that you guys are selling. Oftentimes, so if you're bad performing BDR, that means you're probably doing unknown amounts of damage to the brand and pitching it in the wrong way. You're, is- you're, sp- you're spamming people. But that's okay. That's been the way it's been for 20 years. Huh? It's, well, yeah, it's, it's been that way for a long time. And now with the, all these new AI tools and the everyone... I was, wait- I was waiting for that. <laughs> every sales tool now has a feature where you can create the copy for email faster and you can send it to more people faster, right? So like things are just gonna be more saturated there. And- I mean, the personalization will become easier and has become easier. So it's more difficult to stand out and build that relationship via email than it was when everyone was having to write them manually and you th- a well thought through email did resonate because you knew it came from a human that you trusted. But you also okay. just need less people to do that, right? You can right. do more okay. of that with less people. And so the- so I think for a lot of those reasons, there are issues with the BDR role. Now, the way that I think it may change is to, instead of have someone be a BDR, think of them more as like a junior AE. And what their first six months on the job or however long it is, they are just shadowing and supporting that AE from the top of the funnel all the way through deals closing. And okay. so that means at first it could mean something like, Maybe they're not doing any of the prospecting at first. They're just, they have access to that A's inbox and they're seeing the prospect message go out. And then as things, as people respond, they are like the sales assistant to the AE to help get things on the calendar and driving some of the administrative work of it. That administrative though, I've seen that abused before. That's a tricky one, but I understand. Okay, but that's that's not that appealing. That's a good point. But then I think here's the other piece is they then get to see an AE who should be more skilled at doing the discovery and pulling out the, extracting the pain points, they get to see more of that upfront. And then when it goes on to negotiating, multi-threading the deal, getting other stakeholders involved, 
they're also riding shotgun for that entire thing the entire time. And they're incentivized and the deal is the same way the AE is and just at a lesser scale. And this way they're seeing the entire deal end to end as opposed to just handing it off. And they're learning throughout the entire time what it takes to actually close a deal. Okay, so, so when it comes time to do it themselves, they're in a much better spot. But are we just describing full stack account executives who do their own prospecting? And what you just described there is an onboarding and not onboarding, but a training mechanism to get junior people to be senior people, right? Yeah, that's a really good distillation. <laughs> Isn't that just what you described is? Yeah, I think so. AEs are going to be doing their own prospecting because you don't need SDRs to do this because SDRs can do it. AEs can do it at much more scale without having to write all this kind of, because it's AI assisted. Yeah. Like, then, so then what? But then, okay, so we all have robots working on our behalf, an SDR army of personalization. I'm already getting those emails. So it's happening at scale. The one I got had a disclaimer on it. So it's interesting, <laughs> right? It was clearly written by a not that intelligent, <laughs> artificial intelligence. It was certainly artificial. But then what? So all of our email boxes are filled with hyper-personalized emails about all of our kind of actions and moves that we're making, maybe intent data. All of the blogs that I've written have been distilled down and one line was found from the page 72 of my book. It's like, you said this, here it is, our value proposition. Like, what happens then? So what's the next evolution? So yeah, it evolves out beyond just the BDRs can be replaced by AEs. But if every, but the scale of it is, then how do you create top of funnel? Is it only, there's no more sales led? Is this, what's the final conclusion of this right before Terminator 2? I, I think, <laughs> no, I do think it's the, the blend of marketing and sales development continues to get closer and closer. And like those lines get blurrier because they can both do a lot of the same things, assuming that marketing understands the buyer persona it goes back to the olden days i think so where most of our listeners were selling that everyone was a vp of sales and marketing they were always one thing you owned them both and i guess cro's should be owning them both now but it's really marketing and sales so aes are only working kind of nurtured leads from marketing where there's some intent and marketing is trying to create the top of funnel that bdrs are creating now and they're doing their own prospecting because things have to be leaner now plus people are only for the next, I don't know, six months to two years, right? People are only going to be, they're going to be really tight with their budgets. And so they are only going to want to speak with product experts for the most part, which oftentimes SDRs are not. And so I think it makes sense that AEs are taking over more of the sales cycle. Plus there's probably, there, as you know, there, there are some bad AEs that have been covered up by good SDRs in the past, and this will help create leaner sales teams, which people probably need more of right now. So the evolution in theory is that AEs take over more. That makes sense because they can do more with less. SDRs need to become basically account executives faster. Based on yep. what you first said, they'll be taking over more training. So you'll have more account executives, more quota carrying, creating their own pipeline. And then the next evolution would be that marketing has, it's more of a product-led growth or marketing-led growth organization where the AEs are then because all of the email, all the tubes, the internet tubes are clogged with a mass amount of personalized emails. The only thing getting through is people looking and marketing, triggering people to warm up leads. So then AEs are going after those and bringing in hopefully higher converting leads. And then Top of Funnel is driven by marketing lots of content, right? So that people are 
when they're when it's time for them to search for something or get an answer about something, they are finding the expert-led content that people are creating about their product or service. Okay, so what's I'll put you on the spot here. What's the opportunity here from for people in this space building tools? Does that mean outreach goes away because you don't need a a, a machine that spams the internet? No, I do think that the you what's still the disruption? Yeah, what's the disruption? So that's a good question. I think I think the disruption mainly is in profitability of sales teams where you can sell at the same revenue level as you were before, but you don't need as many reps to do it. And so it it's bad for sales managers. They have less, less people to manage in some ways. But the good ones, the people that are really good at sales are going to have opportunity, I think, to make a lot of money because they are going to be the ones that everyone's going to lean on more so than ever. And I would challenge you, the good sales managers are looking at the P&L. And so sure. they're actually, it's benefiting them if they're compensated with that versus how many people they make. That's fair. That's fair. I was thinking probably more frontline sales managers that are less concerned with the P&L, but I think that's right. a good point. So, so tooling, more AI tools and more assisted to yeah. help train and support more personalization at scale. But I, like, I don't think that's, that's kind of like an obvious opportunity. And I don't know if there's like a non-obvious opportunity here besides the fact that more of, there's just not going to be as much room, I think, for SDRs on sales teams. And there, I guess if there is an opportunity, it's maybe on the sales training front of getting people prepared for that junior AE role in some way. What are your thoughts on this? Because you, you see a lot of the stuff in your conversations. Do you think the BDR role is dying? Maybe. That's a bullshit answer. <laughs> Maybe, Jason. I haven't seen a decline yet. Okay. I continue to see an evolution of different value propositions are compelling enough to create enough discovery meetings where account executives can take those meetings through to to close and the unit economics and the economics of the entire kind of business work. And it's still happening. I think where it's becoming tougher is that it's not just BDRs, but selling to a demographic or a persona that's already being inundated with hyper-personalized emails with similar value propositions. Like, but that's always the way it's been. So, right, as this gets like the proliferation of SaaS. And I saw someone asking like, is there too much SaaS? It's yeah, to the same people, but if it's opening up new things that a lot of the companies I advise are in weird niche areas that are, have the potential to be venture scale, but also those people aren't getting a lot of emails with personalization and value propositions. The AI hasn't gotten there yet, right? Why does, it, why does the BDR role need to exist in 2023? If you have account executives that are working on a lot of pipeline, and don't have enough time to do prospecting. I call it the seesaw. In German, it's called a VIPA. I work with a lot of German companies, so they taught me it's called a VIPA. Basically, if you're working on a lot of pipeline, you're closing deals, you don't have enough time to prospect. That was why SDRs were invented, to create pipeline for AEs that could just close, right? And so if the economics still makes sense where an AE needs to work on pipeline and doesn't have enough time to create pipeline, Right. I always want a culture where an AE will step in and create pipeline if they need it. But ideally, you have that specialization, which is why the SDR function was invented, which is their booking meetings. And if they can do it and book, let's say, 20 meetings a month or 10 meetings each, and the conversion rate's high enough, right, at the, high, at a, at the right ACV that creates enough pipeline and revenue to help an AE close their quota, get to their OTE, and the economics of that makes sense to the business, like, it still makes sense. 
but it's only in that scenario where the AE doesn't have enough time to prospect, which assumes that their pipeline is so full of. And we never people. have enough time to prospect. <laughs> yeah, if you if it's enough if it's full enough. Now, yeah. should it be full enough? But if it's not full enough, they should be prospecting, and they don't need to prospect if it's full enough. Now, if they can do the job where they fill it themselves and strike that balance, but that is really hard, right? I was I never had an SDR when I was an AE the olden yeah. days. And if you're working on pipeline and trying to close off at the end of the month, for example, you're probably not prospecting. It just takes more discipline, right? And I think we've all gotten a little lazy because SDRs create our pipeline and then we all we have to do is close and blah, blah, blah. But you see the most disciplined account executives that are overachieving and all the stuff on LinkedIn is how did you get to 200% of quotas? Oh, I create my own pipeline in line with the SDR. So yeah, I think it's going to allow for the most disciplined to become hyper-efficient and yeah. be effective. Yeah. So BDR role, the, the future of the BDR role is still in flux, but we will see. So maybe the final thought on this, and it goes back to the, like why you, it was invented in the first place, right? Is yeah. these, the market like is always right. And right now with so many SaaS companies raising so much money, you have the very high talent sales reps are spread quite thin. And so it is hard to get an AE that will create their own pipeline right? And closed pipeline and is world-class and you can pay them enough to justify this. And I think it also takes a different mindset to say, actually, we're going to pay you 20% commission because we don't need SDRs, right? With SDRs, maybe it's 10% commission because the economics don't make sense. But right. wow, we just, you just saved me paying 150 to two SDRs to get you to quota. You can get some of that. I think it's, a, it's an evolution to back to more of a bootstrapped or lean approach where the AEs, you attract the best AEs that are the most disciplined. So I'd say this probably, this is also a, I don't want to say laziness, but a symptom of inefficiency from the business potentially where you can't get AEs that will create their own pipeline. So you have to hire SDRs to do it because that's the way it's been for the last 10 years. Do you think, generally speaking, full stack AEs are more profitable than AEs with SDRs? For most businesses, for sure. So it goes back to the venture climate as well, right? Where top line matters a bit less right now and profitability and burn rate matters more. And the, that pressure could put more pressure on the SDRs or BDRs than the technology. That's probably true. That's probably true. Okay. Pray for you, BDRs. Yeah. I'm with yeah. You. Anybody that sends emails that are personalized, that gets rejected or doesn't get a response, I stand with you. <laughs> yeah. Like the, and let me be clear, like the, the BDR SDR role is one of the most difficult roles in, in all of tech, but it's where many people have gotten their start and it's a great proving ground. But oh, just, I love it. I, was, I did it for way too long, but it also laid the groundwork where I can cold call still and pick up, write emails and I still do, still get rejected. Yeah. They still go in unanswered. But I actually think what's really interesting is if BDRs, and outbound prospecting is done to build relationships and connections, right? And if AI becomes so widespread that we don't trust anybody, then we only trust the people we know. And it's almost like a power law where the people already have lots of connections and are trusted, become more powerful, and it's much harder to break in without a face-to-face -face human interaction. Because I'm like, that seems interesting. You seem thoughtful, but you probably, an AI probably wrote that. So I don't care. I'll just ignore it. Versus if I get a really personalized note still, it's really thoughtful. I'm going to engage with that person because I'm like, oh, they're starting a relationship. Yeah. And that's the beginning of a lot of sales. Maybe just throwing value props in front of people will trigger some people, but it's just going to become so 
difficult to get that to convert that it's going to, I don't know, break yeah. the tubes. Yeah. Per personal personalization still matters because it represents someone that's actually doing research no. and cares. And even with all the tools, it's still. When right. that breaks down, though, I think there's going to be some interesting kind of dynamics that happen. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to another topic. We were talking about this a little bit before, but I think you've been having some conversations about some of the major mistakes founders make. So why don't you unpack that for us? Yeah, I was with a group of founders. This is just going to get me wound up. And some had done some presentations. It was a, an interesting exchange. And there was this theme that they kept saying, oh, you're going to fire your first sales manager. And I was, that made me sick. Still, uh, it's harsh reality. I was a sales manager. I was the first one. I don't go in knowing I'm going to be fired. And I was like, oh, I got to unpack this and understand it. And I think what they were saying, and I know what they were saying, was that despite how much we say that you can't hire a sales manager until the founder has been selling and the founder has done a knowledge transfer where they've educated other account executives that go to market, uh, account executive, founding account executive, sales pioneer, whatever you want to call it, and get somebody else up and running and start to build a skeleton crew of that engine that starts to run that then allows you to track a world-class VP of sales. If you hire a sales leader too soon, you're going to fire them. And I think a lot of sales managers want that job. They think it sounds really sexy. It's an early stage startup working right for the founder. But unless they're actually willing to be in the IC and book meetings and do the full stack AE role, they're going to fail. And I think a lot of people get sold the magic of, I'll make all your problems go away, Mr. or Mrs. Founder. You won't have to sell anymore. Just give me the money and I'll help build a team. And I just keep seeing a lot of founders go through this. Some of the ones that don't want to work with me as an advisor because they're like, oh, I'll just hire a sales leader and they'll do what you would do as an advisor. And then they call me six months later, like, so I fired him. I should have taken your advice. So it's like the same theme over and over that no matter how much I yell into this microphone and say this, founders are going to be sold the magic of, hey, I'm a VP of sales. I'll come in as your first sales hire, solve all your problems, and you won't need anyone else. And they just keep having to fire that person. So it's like a symptom or the results of their own decision-making that they only later realized was a bad decision so that they have to fire them. So that I keep hearing them say this as a message and a warning to other founders about to go on this B2B SaaS journey that you'll have to fire your first sales manager if you mess this up, which you seem to be inclined to do because it's the path of least resistance in the short term. And so it, it kind of makes you sick. Right. <laughs> and it, say feels, it, but... it feels like it's the path of least resistance, but what it turns out is that you end up paying a lot more because you waste a lot of time with this person in that role. And that's first is not the right role that you actually need right now, which is like where all hiring should start is like, what's the role that you need right now? Not the role that you're going to need six, 12, 18 months from now. I and, got that from you. I've been saying that a lot. It makes me sound <laughs> smart. Thank you. A wise man once said, but the people, people see the shiny thing and, oh yes, this will fix my problems. Problem is like, that new sales leader, they haven't been doing the thing. They haven't been actually getting the customer feedback. They haven't been on the front lines doing things like this yet with your selling team, alongside right? the founder right. for a long time. Yeah. And there's also, there's also every time you bring someone in, particularly a smaller team, anytime you bring any leader in, there's always a chance of organ rejection. But the risk of that is even higher when that person is joining a smaller team right, where the culture is built pretty strongly around a core set of people. And then you bring in this stranger to come lead these other folks. And, and to hire more people that are even more disconnected from the founder-led selling. Yeah. 
It's just a bit, it's a big risk. And a lot of overhead, a lot of cash. Yes. Yeah. Right? You're going to pay. So the, you and I talked about this a lot before, but hiring that sales pioneer first or getting someone that is willing to do, start with someone that's willing to do the full stack selling and slowly build from there. But the person that led teams before is not usually the person that's going to Figure out how to sell your product alongside the founder and do that knowledge trans transfer from founder-led selling over to the sales rep, an account executive. And frankly, and Jordan, our mutual friend, who actually, we've started this whole engagement at his wedding. <laughs> we did a panel discussion led by an investor during the wedding dinner. Our wives <laughs> loved it. At least we bonded and led to this, but said it was adverse selection. Only a VP of sales that was unqualified to actually do that job would take that job because they don't realize how perilous it is. And only qualified VPs of sales would take, they're looking for ingredients. They need to see productivity from other people, not just the founder that can sell, that they can come and say, I can scale this. I'll build it up. I'll build up the playbooks, but there's all the ingredients. And so if a VP of sales takes that job, they don't, they're not smart enough to realize that that's not a good job to take. And therefore, they're definitely going to fail because they shouldn't be taking this job because you don't have enough ingredients to attract a later stage, to attract a qualified VP of sales. Yeah, you don't have a, as a founder, you don't have the right ingredients to attract the right person for that job. And you and I, well, well everything will running nameless, but there was an example of this that you and I talked about playing out in real time where I got introduced to a founder. They needed some help with everything sales. They had brought in a VP of sales was managing three people, I'm sorry, that is not a VP of sales. If you are only managing three people, you are not a VP of sales. You are a player coach at best. And unless you're, you have a mandate to only focus on hiring to build your team up. That person was failing at their entire job. They weren't able to attract people. They weren't closing up business. And the team, that they weren't closing up business themselves. And the team they're managing was not hitting their numbers either. And it was a classic case of the founder being sold to build goods from this VP of sales and advisors to hire the VP. And turns out that VP that you and I know actually have a bad track record of performance, particularly in roles like this. It's challenging. And then later stage investors are advising, right? Because they see the patterns that their best performing startups or scale-ups have world-class VPs of sales or CROs. So they're saying, bring that person in and hire them first. And so, yeah, that's that, that. I get the pattern matching, and that is correlated with that later stage company. But I've been fortunate; I keep hearing it from good investors that are recommending against this advice to bring in these people. And I've seen it actually work out when these very senior title people actually operate as ICs. Now they're not truly a VP of sales if you're operating as an IC as your first hire. And so we got lucky that the VP of sales that I came in to advise is actually an incredible salesperson and has laid down these frameworks and blueprints to then start hiring. And so it worked out, but only because they had a title that wasn't really the job they did. So it can work out, but it gets, that was a unique case. And I see these later stage investors continue to recommend this and I'm gonna to continue to recommend it against it as an operator yeah. <laughs> who's helped navigate this. And seen know, it fail many times. A few times. All right, on the early stage sales topics here, I was talking with a sales leader this week, early stage company, and he was asking me about playbooks. He was like, he's feeling pressure because he needs to, he, right now 
he thinks, hey, I got to add more playbooks for my team because I'm not happy with the discovery call. I'm not happy with the demo call. And, and so I got to get more of this stuff documented and have it ready to go for, his, for my team. And I asked him, first I said, people aren't going to read your playbooks. They're, they will if you're training them that's nice. that's a nice the first time around. And it has nothing to do with you writing the playbooks. It's just the fact that whenever you're given a playbook, you're, you reference it maybe here or there later on, but like you're too busy thinking about your number as a rep. Oh, he's not talking about what a playbook is. Okay, that, let's define a playbook. What is a playbook to you? It's an onboarding manual. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just exactly. answer your question. Yeah. yeah, it's an onboarding manual. It's the best thing that you have right now based on everything you've learned. And it's going to change. It's this latest draft of onboarding your next employee. Or if, a, if you can build out different playbooks based on high-performing individuals, right? Like I had different reps, better strengths and weaknesses. So I'd have my best reps. I'd work with them on building the playbook for who's my best discovery call rep. That's the playbook. And if I saw other reps struggling with that thing, I would onboard them <laughs> again into what that discovery is. So it is a, it's a training manual of sorts. I like to use it for onboarding, but it is also a training manual of a struggling aspect of a rep's thing. But I would, to your point, reps are not going to go back and be like, let me look through the manual and right. see like, how to change out my discovery. Your sales team is struggling. <laughs> the cure is not a playbook, right? Like that is not what is going to fix their ails. And we have this conversation I made that point first and he seemed bought in. Well, wait, um, so explain that a little bit. Cause I, I don't know if I totally agree. A playbook isn't going to fix the ails of a struggling sales team. So the, just documenting what you think is working right now. If nothing's working. Yeah. yeah. Okay. If nothing's working, document what you, what is working, doesn't work. And, and also, what you think would work without t trying it. Okay. All right. right. And people, what great sales reps do you know that they learn by reading a PDF? And then they're good to go. Maybe they didn't have a notion with a lot of emojis. So that's my point. And so the, what I told him was like, okay, first, let, you have a million things on your plate because you're an early stage team and you have a lot of things to do. So you're not happy with the demo calls. You're not happy with the discovery calls. Which one of these two things, let's just pick one, which one of these two things is more important and more impactful to your team's success right now? Okay. And he said, the discovery call. He's like, the demo call, I asked him, I said, usually if they're more junior, someone's on the call with them, like they can have an expert. So they have some protection on the demo call to make sure that goes well. But the discovery call was not where he wanted it to be. And what does and that mean? Not where he wanted it to be as the founder? That the non-founder, early stage sales leader, but people I think are, they're going through the motions a bit too much. Like they're not finding the most important pain point. They're not discovering. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. They're trying to check the boxes. Yeah. and. And so we talked about, okay, let's isolate our problem. Let's just focus on the discovery call for now. Yeah. And let's talk through like ways that you can improve that the fastest. And the, the two main things we talked about were first is just shadowing more calls, doing more role plays, like live things that people will get people into that motion for my money is always going to be the best way to, to train. And then the second was just create the framework for that discovery call. You don't need to fill out every single question, but you need to create something that's flexible and you need to create something that, that just has like the main outline of the conversation. It doesn't have to have every single talking point. And I recommend he do it in Google Doc. 
Okay. I don't care about the format <laughs> where it lives. Sorry. I, specifically, I said Google Doc because it's the most flexible and things are going to change, especially at early stages. Yeah. So you don't want to go into your HubSpot or your Salesforce and like try to set up all the field. No, no. I, was, I, I see it often used in Notion because you can. it's an easier to go through like a library. It's almost more like a wiki versus the Google Doc. But this is a this formality. Question for you, though. The way that I describe to founders who haven't gone through this discovery process of what's a discovery and what I, the way that I look at it is, what is the value that your product provides? What is the pain that it solves? You got to articulate that. Why do you exist as a company? Yeah. Then your discovery is trying to uncover with that prospect, what are the things that are worth talking more about? Because if you can ask a bunch of questions, but it's not, if you interrogate someone, that's not very pleasant. And the best ones are not, don't ask that many questions, but the conversation leads to uncovering the areas or discovering the areas of value or pain that your product solves. And then you can say, hey, it sounds like this is painful for you. We could solve that. And if it doesn't check off any of the boxes of why they would ever buy it, why are you, why are you booking a next call? You think showing the buttons of, right. of value that it doesn't actually do? I messed this up so bad in my early days as a sales rep. Button demo-led selling. Let me show you all the buttons and you can tell me which one sticks. Like, Then maybe 10% of it is really valuable and they'd pay for it. But you've showed them 90% that's diluted the value. They don't want to pay for all of it. Right. And it just ends up being this like mess. And so I like that, like start within the middle, almost between the discovery and the demo of why would you ever show them the product? Why do you exist? Is there any value there? And then validate it and keep those threads throughout the whole process. And you're going back to be like, oh, when we spoke, you said this was painful. Is it no longer painful? Why are you not moving forward with this process? And yeah, I mean, that's been my approach is starting there and then working towards the questions and the discovery to then. Yeah. What I, are you well, trying to answer? I think there, there's also this concept of document everything at an early stage. Yeah. And I think that's a horrible idea. Okay. Because that's a strong opinion. All right. I, and the reason I say is today. <laughs> that comes from having done this a few times over now. And what inevitably ends up happening is things change so much so fast that half the shit you write down becomes worthless and it just becomes all this debt that you have to sift through. I agree. The draft. It. I'm very deliberate in saying this is our latest draft. It's going to change. It's the best that we have now, like sales stages. Right. They're going to evolve over time. This is just our latest draft of sales stages. Like, this is it right. for a while. Right. But that's so that's why I think, particularly in the early stages, is the outline is much more important than the bullets. And just make sure that you are constantly scrutinizing that because the bullets are going to change from conversation to conversation, right? Those details are continuously going to change and you're not going to be ready to have your battle card for every scenario yet. Eventually you'll get there, but that's going to take a long time. It's and also so to your point, like the discovery questions, if you're just checking the boxes of asking the questions without the intent of understanding why you're asking yeah. them and what you're getting to, that whole experience is terrible. And then it's easy to go through the motions. Or exactly. what are you trying to get to? What pain are you trying to uncover that if they don't have we don't need to open an opportunity or move this through the pipeline. So great. Sounds like this isn't a priority or a pain for you. We'll talk later like yeah. in months. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think too many companies spend time documenting everything and not documenting the important stuff. And so that's my encouragement for folks is to don't actually document everything. Just try to pare down to the outlines and the concepts because everything else is going to change later on. All right. So on that topic, I, I asked, was the founder selling or who was unhappy with the discovery? 
a, a big topic or I was on a webinar the other day and someone had asked me like, have you seen a startup that was successful, a B2B SaaS startup where the founder or someone on the founding team wasn't actively selling in the early days? I couldn't think of one. Neither you? No, no, full stop. No. Okay. Have you, how long does a, so they need to be selling. How long? So I think you need a framework for this, right? Because it's obviously going to depend on every company. And I think there has to be sales product market fit, not just product market fit, but sales product market fit to the point where the founder can actually close a deal end to end and do that a few times. So with some outsourcing that or handing that up to someone else, do so at your almost guaranteed peril if yes. someone else is searching for your product market fit for you or selling your product on your behalf without the founder involvement in the early days. And, be, and particularly when this happens, it's with a non-technical founder, or sorry, with a technical founder. Yeah. And if the technical founder isn't getting that direct customer feedback, then they're going to have a, they're going to struggle to understand the thing that they need to build for their actual customers. And God bless any product or technical founders who their first selling experience is selling their baby in the face of just extreme rejection. You and I have been salesmen our whole lives. The rejection, it ebbs and flows in how much you're getting and whether you build up an armor to it. But if you've never had that in the face of this, it's like that alone might be the correlating factor with successful startups is if you can overcome that, then you will, you can overcome anything, right? And I think that... And to answer your question, I think it's, yeah, they, I don't know, probably they need to have done at least like close at least like three de deals themselves. So they have some understanding of what it actually takes to close the deal and they understand the customer feedback. But I think once they've done it to whatever, three or whatever. Three might be on low side, but okay. I'm sure. Not... Yeah. I guess it truly depends. But once they've done that, they have so much more credibility with that first salesperson they hire and they'll know so much more about what to look for in that person. What yeah. do you like? Do you have a specific answer for this? I think forever. It's true. There you go. I'll, I'll drop the mic and we'll walk away. Yeah, I think the reality is the best performing companies, you see these publicly traded companies, the CEOs are on those forecast calls, right? They want to know what the revenue is coming in. They're going to report to Wall Street. Like they're involved. Yeah. I don't think you're ever not involved. I think you can phase out of actually doing the full stack AE, but that's why you hire a full stack AE and start to do a knowledge transfer. But the best CEOs are coming in to help close deals, right? Not just like they're not their closing skills, but they're coming in to talk about the product, to show FaceTime, to show that they care to the customer. They're never getting away. They also need a pulse on the revenue, right? If your revenue starts to go bad or something changes, whose fault is that? Like, it doesn't matter whose fault it is. You blame the VP of sales, fire the first sales manager, blow up your AE team, right? Oh, it's the SDRs not creating enough pipeline. Okay, cool. But you're in the board meeting with your investors answering to them or trying to raise more money. If you don't have a hand on the pulse of revenue, and it's not like really clear where we're headed and getting that product feedback into the team or being able to step in and say, we need this revenue. I'm going to take over if you're leading the engineering team or the CTO or whatever, or the head of product to say, actually, we need to go in this direction a little bit. I think it'll help close a few deals. God, that's, the, that's still selling. You don't have to be out there doing discovery calls. Right. Like you're still involved in the revenue process forever. And that's not just to your IPO. It's like forever. It's like a, a, someone that opens up a restaurant, right? They open up a restaurant, they're creating all of the recipes and they're tweaking them and figuring them out. And then finally it gets to a point where they can hand that off to a new head chef 
and that chef is responsible for continuing uh, the process it, right yeah. continue the process building those recipes and like perfecting those recipes or just running your recipe all the time but you don't think if you want to continue to grow that restaurant that you're going to taste the soup every once in a while make sure it's actually the menu the recipe you gave him so i think that's the whole taste of soup thing is incredibly important and you're right it's probably it's more of a phased handoff it's not okay we got the salesperson see you later it's okay, I bring the salesperson in, they're going to help me probably with some discovery and shadow calls for a while. And then once they can start to do some of that stuff themselves, I'll come in later on in the deals. And then eventually I'll only get brought in the later stage deals or like the biggest, most important deals. I love this. We could talk about it all day, but you've made me hungry. I'm going to go eat lunch. <laughs> it's good. We're at time. That's a wrap for today. I'd love to get feedback on this. We don't know it all. We have strong opinions. I can hold yes, them loosely please. if I can be convinced otherwise. So I'd love to hear in the comments, especially on LinkedIn, when we share some of these clips. If you disagree, speak it loudly. We want to hear. Let us know. Yeah. We'll get you on the podcast so we can spar over this. Exactly. Take care. All right, man. We'll wrap it.